Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Behavioral Health COVID-19 Conversations, which we're bringing to you as part of the Palm Beach County Medical Society COVID-19 Resource Center. This is one of our resources. I'm Brent Schillinger, and I'm joined tonight by Dr. Abby Strauss, psychiatrist, eminent psychiatrist in Boca Raton, past president of the Florida Psychiatric Society, among many other things. We want this to be an interactive discussion. I see we have something like 35 people on the call already. Uh, put the emphasis on making this an interactive discussion. Getting right into the discussion here tonight, let's, let's realize that when it comes to mental health issues and coronavirus, it operates on so many levels. The acute problem, there's a chronic problem we can have here. There's a problem of us as physicians being able to help our patients. And there's the problems of us having to deal with the emotional psychiatric issues in our own lives, both professionally and personally. Since we all like to hear evidence-based data, American Psychiatric Association just a few days ago released a poll showed that 48% of Americans are anxious about contracting coronavirus. 40% are anxious about becoming seriously ill or possibly dying. 62% of Americans anxious about family and loved ones getting the virus. And another 59% of Americans are anxious about having serious impact from the virus on their day-to-day -day lives. The takeaway I have from this is a comment I read. I didn't make this one up, but perhaps it's more important to begin to assuage the anxiety over coronavirus than to be swabbing nasal pharynxes. Abby, Abby Strauss, what's your take? Your, your introductory data is very valid. One of the things from my perspective, and we have to be professionals about all of this, is that we have to separate the emotional needs of ourselves from the emotional needs of our patients. There are huge overlaps, to be sure. But my perspective is, and, and this is open for complete discussion, obviously, but right now we need to conceptualize what we need to do to keep ourselves healthy and to keep the system working. One of the things that just intrigues me is how different this is than other crises. Perhaps we've never had a crisis that's actually similar. One of the things that is for mental health is, of course, we don't touch patients in the normal course of treating them, but they are touched in every other way. They're touched emotionally, and they're, they're missing that, and the isolation is missing that. The overlap, and I think this is where we have to delineate between what we are and our patients are, that this is a time when we are not treating them. We are treating us as well because we could get the virus. It's not like you treated somebody and they went home. It's not that delineated anymore. So those are my opening thoughts. I would love to hear and banter about what other people are feeling about this, how they're doing, and let's just go through the process. We have approximately an hour. Let's do it. Any thoughts, Brent? Is anybody coming in? We have a question from Richard Rayborn. He says, several counseling groups are now offering free telemedicine talk sessions. We think this is a valuable addition, and how, how can this be uh, something that we can utilize for our patients? I've looked at some of these. It seems that I'm getting several of these every day, and I don't have the time to vet them. I wish I could trust them. I wish they were altruistic. They're a little bit too quick and they don't seem on close examination to give what we need. I, I'm afraid that we are beginning to see, even though it may be well-intended, and I hope I'm not being too narrow or too harsh, but we are beginning to see what's known as disaster capitalism because two of the sites that I looked at said insurance accepted. 
The other site that I looked at, one was up in Massachusetts. They could be very good people, and I, I know I'm stepping out of line perhaps, but we have to do it. That's our, that's our reality right now. We have to do it, is that if you have a lesser trained therapist who is simply going to be nice to you right now, talking to someone with greater training or more sophistication, how do they do that? How do they delineate that? It reminds me too much and again, I'm probably going to say it much too often, but it reminds me too much about how after 911 that every group was going to New York City to do post-traumatic stress disorder counseling, and they were going to help all these wonderful people. So I like the idea. I think it's good. But before anybody signs up to it, they need to really look to whom they're talking. Is there a cost? And how is it going to be really worked out? Now, just to rattle the waters a little bit, one of the defining entry points to me is when someone says, we're going to treat the post-traumatic stress disorder from the coronavirus, and the answer is perhaps. <laughs> Just as a, a quick flashback, when we did it last week, we tried very hard. We were so fortunate to have so many people join us that we believe we went way over our bandwidth, and that's why we couldn't do anything. Anyway. So the issue is, if they're treating post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't exist yet. So that means they don't know what they're talking about. For a post-traumatic stress disorder, it has to be months. And therefore, this is an acute or an adjustment disorder phenomenon. And so if they're saying you have post-traumatic stress disorder from this, they don't have a diagnostic workup. And I think we need to walk away from that. Your thoughts on that, folks? Anybody? You know, we were talking before about PTSD. You said that that really doesn't exist just yet. At which point will that exist? And how much of that do you think there will be? It doesn't mean that the symptoms can't be here, but the diagnostic terminology doesn't exist. So it's called an acute stress reaction or adjustment disorder. It could be very severe, and especially if it's confounded by fatigue, just every day. You know, this one thing when a trauma occurs and it's over, as bad as 9-11 was, and it was horrible, it was over. This is not. This is ongoing exhaustion and traumatization. And so if somebody is going to offer counseling for that, they have to very carefully take into, into their formula that this is not finished. And I would be very curious to see what their approach is. So conceptually, I like the idea. Be careful. Okay, we have a comment here from Dr. Rayborn again. He says, it's hard for physicians to take advice from lesser trained individuals. Yes, it's sad. It's sad. And I, 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 I don't know what to tell you. It, either the physician is going to have to accept the fact that they need the skills of someone who has a completely different skill set, perhaps. But we don't know if the person who has a very good nurse practitioner or a very good social worker is the person to whom you're talking. We don't know that. It renders a potential, shall we say, handicap to a good relationship. It's hard. It's really hard. Elaine Rottenberg, she has a comment to share. What you can do, you, you can unmute yourself. We have it set up so you can unmute yourself. Actually, I'll unmute you. Okay. Hi. Hi, Dr. Strauss. This is Hi. Dr. Dr. Rottenberg. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I was appreciated being invited to this tonight. It's quite timely. I actually, myself and another psychologist today, actually ran a we just wanted to try it. We did an open Zoom forum, no charge, <laughs> to your point, I just asked, called Coping with Our New Reality, Social Distancing Without Isolation. And it was very interesting because we had other mental health professionals, we had 
volunteers. We just had folks from the community. There were about 58 people that came on the call. The focus was very, it, to your point, uh, Abby, the focus was really totally agree with the PTSD issue. I mean, it's foolhardy to talk about that at this point. Our focus was really normalizing a lot of the reality of what people are experiencing right now. There is information that we as professionals with good training can share with, like help them understand that every pre-morbid experience that was going on in their life is not only still existing, but this situation is just going to compound it and make it feel worse. Sometimes just saying those things to people helps them, helping them understand that they've completely lost. I mean, there's some normalization kinds of things that we shared with them. And then talking to people about something that was actually developed in Israel by a physician, a they called it the basic pH for coping, and they did it with PTSD, and it was really helping folks identify what their coping, you know, people, people are supposed to feel horrible. Right? There's no reason why, why people shouldn't have issues right now. So it's not immediately throwing them into intensive treatment as much as helping at the front end normalize some of it and helping them maybe recognize how they can cope with specific tools and then at some point when they need to go for that next step in terms of help. To speak to your, your good comments, Thanks, a, couple, a couple things. Number one is that physicians or any mental health person need not do this alone. Please do not do this alone. The emotional stuff here is huge and to not share it means it could theoretically fester. The second thing, which is extremely hard, is that we who are in the mental health field are just humans. And many of us have our own packages of Michigas. And many of us are obsessive or anxious or germophobic and so on and so on. And if we don't, and I don't expect people to come to terms with it instantly, that, that's, that's idealistic. But if people don't accept the fact like, oh my God, you know, I really can't stand this because I'm out of control because I'm really obsessive and I like to control things and I can't control this. It's going to fester. So it's not to be alone, to talk to people about it. And it's all the standard things. If you go home and you need a drink to go to sleep, maybe. I, I don't really endorse that past the point, but, you know, but maybe. Don't be alone. To add to a point that Elaine made specifically, you know, generally, certainly in, in primary care, a lot of times you deal with patients who suffer from some types of anxiety or depression. And as, as a clinician, a lot of times you say the things that are triggering it, you know, this doesn't really seem to be that big a deal, but the patient is having this excessive reaction. Here, we're dealing with real stuff out there, real things that we are not certain about. There's a lot of fear, a lot of panicking. How do you deal with patients on that basis? You know, it's like that phrase they'd say, are you paranoid if you're actually being followed around by those little green men, but they're actually there. So here people are reacting, but they're reacting to something that's really there. It's not an endogenous source. Which, which speaks directly to the issue of using medications. Now we were focusing on more of the professionals than on the patients, but you can see the overlaps here are huge. It's, it's a slippery overlap. We have to be very careful that we don't confuse exogenous anxiety with that which requires a Xanax. The complex aspect of it here is that sometimes even the professional these days will need a Xanax. That requires monitoring. That requires a workforce. We don't really have that big of a workforce for every doctor to spend time with their own therapist, of course.
we have to be very careful. I've had a lot of patients say, I'm not sleeping and I'm scared and I can't do this and I can't do that. And I have to listen very carefully to see if this is a manifestation of their underlying pathology or this is reactive. The word reactive is not used that much in psychiatry anymore. Too bad. We call it an adjustment reaction to a situation. But a lot of it is now reactive. So the use of medications, there's a time and place for it. Prudent. And I would highly advise, and it's going to be very hard to maintain this bit of advice. <laughs> you know it is. But I, w- I would highly advise that before uh, primary care people, they start giving out the benzodiazepines and the likes to help. We, we have to keep it in, in focus. And it's going to be hard. We just don't have the time to deal with every patient. So I hear what you're saying. And it goes to the layers and layers. What can the doctor do themselves? What if they, being a human being, need to have some medication just so they can function as well? What if they need, what if they need, they, the physicians, need that place to have probably in their own group, to your point before, a place to really talk about the reality of their own fears and what's going on? I hope I'm quoting correctly. Martin Luther King said, we all came to this country in different ships, but now we are all in the same boat. Here's a question from the uh, group chat. What about stigma and fear of professional retribution being the largest obstacle for most physicians seeking out care for themselves in times of mental anguish? Oh, that's big. We have for a long time argued with the Board of Medicine, not only here in Florida, but elsewhere in other boards in the United States, about if a doctor goes into a mental health treatment, are they still competent to practice medicine? Most of the time, the answer is yes. But it becomes an issue if they're getting intoxicated or taking medications. So one does have that, and that is an issue. That being said, prudent use of mental health interventions will show that you're doing the right thing. And as long as you're functioning and there's no clinical problems, your colleagues aren't coming up, you know, it's the old story where one surgeon says to the next, I see your hand is shaky. What's the matter? If we don't get to that level, we're okay. Stigma, listen, folks, when this whole thing is over, we'll sit down and have one hell of a big meeting about the problem of stigma, especially in Florida. It is better, thanks in part to a lot of grassroots advocacy organizations. Oh, my God. But there's no time for stigma now. I know it sounds very black and white, but there's no time for stigma. You've got to take care of yourself. And, Let me go back to more of a general question. Please. Statistically, we're telling our patients that, gee, about 80% of the people who contract a virus are going to have mild to minimal symptoms physically. Yes. I mean, the other 20%, there's all kinds of things going on. But what about the psychological, emotional impact. What percentage of the people who contract the virus will have that? What percentage of the people who don't contract the virus? The hard statistics are probably still not here, but we can extrapolate a bit. We know that between 20 and 40%, and it depends upon how tight the statistics are, but between 20 and 40% of every American has some sort of diagnosable mental illness. Now, what we don't know is how many people are not revealing it or not telling it, and it shows up in other manifestations. Your question is to the point. It's absolutely to the point. Unless somebody has a data source that I don't, which I'm, I'm always open to, please, I would say that we're probably looking at a, a, a good 25% of the population being affected somewhere significantly, and we'll see how it holds up. One of the things that we'll add to it is the fatigue of the duration of the, of the crisis, to be sure. 
And how are we going to deal with that? Will we have enough mental health professionals to handle this? We already lack enough mental health professionals. So we as a mental health group cannot let ourselves burn out. We need to have colleagues. We need to listen to music, go eat with family. You may have to sit six feet away from them, but nonetheless, eat with family and do things to find something that relaxes us. We lack that enormously, and that has been a problem. That being said, not everybody necessarily needs a mental health professional. It may be sufficient just to have a friend. It may be sufficient just to have someone to talk to or to listen to webinars like us and for all of us to say to each other, yep, but you know what? We're not alone. Yes. Okay, we have uh, from Megan Arnett who we will unmute and lower the hand. Hello, Megan, you have a question? Hi, how are you? Good, how are you tonight? So, I'm good, thank you so much for allowing us this opportunity. I have actually invited my entire staff to attend this meeting because our office has virtually transitioned into telehealth medicine. We are not seeing any patients in the office it's like all of the staff has to learn a new job and their anxiety is almost worse than patients. So as an administrator for Dr. Robert Friedman, um, Headache and Pain Center of Palm Beach, I need you guys to help us as a practice with the nurse practitioner, the front desk, the nurses, the clinical people dealing with the stress of this and not knowing what's coming towards us. And as the title of this presentation was Mental Health for Professionals and Patients, how can I help my staff deal with the unknown and just our whole world has changed in the office? Your world has changed. All our worlds have changed. And if any of you ever decide to go into formal mental health training, if you have a good enough teacher, they will start to talk about ego structures. And I don't want to go off on tangents, but it's important because we are the leaders. Many of the people who practice medicine have an ego structure that allows them to act and think and expect and react to a style of practicing their vocation in a manner. They have now got to learn to change. Sounds very black and white and simple, but that's what they have to do. It may take some longer to do it than others, but it means sitting down and figuring out what do I need to do to give the proper necessary services to the particular patient. They also need to understand that they themselves, the patient, I'm sorry, the, the professional may at times feel guilty that they aren't doing enough for the patient, but that's the reality right now. We've got to learn to separate what we expect, want, anticipate, and, and all those things from what we can do. So it's a process. I would think this would be a great time to have a group meeting, um, maybe bring somebody in who's a mental health person, maybe not. Obviously, a group meeting in a big room now with all the separations, okay, that, that goes as, as, a, as a given. And talk about what can we do that's different and yet be the same and don't feel like you're giving up. But one of the things is that how shall I say this? It's the feeling that we are not unique in a bad way. We're unique in a communal way, and we'll just have to make it work. One of the things that has always been a problem is how to make decisions that are uncomfortable with the patient, and sometimes we do. 
So again, and I, I'm using this over and over, but I think it's that important. We need to do it together. Dr. Schillinger and I were actually talking about an offset of this in that there are people now developing triage strategies on how to handle situations that are just not going to be manageable in a typical hospital. It is demanding that people give up the way that they were doing things and just blanketly, piece by piece, but blanketly begin to accept that they have to change. Megan, your, your concern is very valid. I've seen it in my office. We don't have the same nature and setup that you do, but even my, my secretary in the way that she has to interact with patients, it's different. She tries not to be harsh. She tries not to be short, but there just isn't enough time to give everybody what they want. Part of the reason also that we need to look at this is patients come to our offices expecting to be treated the way they were treated in the past. So they too need some help. And I very often say to patients, so how's it going? Very different, isn't it? I bet you never thought you'd see this in your life. Yeah, it's hard for us too. Oh my God, that we just lost the, the, hold on, I got to call you back. The TV camera isn't working and make it human and include them in what we're doing. Too many people come into a doctor's office, see the doctor, they get good services, but it's not much of an interaction. There's usually not the emotional interaction. Here, you gotta add the emotional interaction. But it's this whole dynamic that needs to be done and for people to look at their own ego structures and say, well, what do I want and what can I change? And not feel guilty if they have to do that. that that's just the beginning point. I, I hope I, I mean, I could talk about it on and on, but I hope that it captures a little bit of what I think you should do. Your thoughts. Wonderfully said. I am so appreciative of your input, and that's what we are doing. Good. And we will continue to do working out the kinks. Patients are very receptive to telehealth. We mm -hmm. tell them that it's for their, their own well-being as well as our staff and physicians. And unfortunately, Dr. Friedman, one of his colleagues, is on a respirator in the hospital no, good, with the virus out of Lake Worth. And so I told him, stay home, keep doing telehealth, do not come in the office because you are an essential, as we all are, all are hearing, essential versus non-essential. And I told him, you are an essential, stay home, do not come in contact with patients. We're doing telehealth and patients are extremely receptive to it. And they have their smartphones, their laptops. I'm shocked how many patients are able to do telehealth. And I really wanna urge everyone listening because of this pandemic and how close it's been hitting home in Palm Beach County, please. Everybody's doxy.me is free and you can invite patients, they can attend, they have a smartphone or something or something like that, but it's hitting home and doctors need to be very, very careful when they come into contact with patients because it's, it's here. I think there's an important message there also, which, which the Medical Society has made clear to the physicians in Palm Beach County and to the patients is that there's not any abandonment by physicians. We are here for our patients. There may be different technology that we'll be employing, telemedicine, but we are here and we're doing our job as best as possible. That's an important message for physicians to understand and for the public. A couple of those other questions I want to mention regarding, there's some more information. There's a seminar coming up on April 7th, special seminar, Leading with Compassion, Supporting Healthcare Workers in a Crisis. That's going to be given free online, the Schwartz Center, schwartzcenter.org. And the Medical Society 
is expanding the physician wellness program confidential counseling. So for those physicians who are having issues, this is a good starting point, totally confidential and coordinated through the Medical Society as a service to our physicians. I endorse what Dr. Schillinger said. Don't it's, it's confidential, and if you know anybody who's a physician and needs the help, have them call. Tell them, tell them not to wait, please. Have them call. It's great service. So here's another comment in the chat. Not a practicing physician, but maintain an active Pennsylvania medical license. Not a psychiatrist. I also recently earned a MPH in global health in Israel. I've struggled with mental illness for most of my adult life, but it is lack of opportunity due in large part to stigma that has stalled my career. Currently, the most difficult struggle I'm having during the pandemic is not being able to find an opportunity to help. It kills me to see the massive need and yet being unaffiliated. I'm having trouble finding a place organization to volunteer with. Any suggestions, leads of how I could get involved is greatly appreciated. I would instantly recognize and appreciate your concerns. The fact that you've suffered means that you both know it, you've seen it, felt it. Your sense of the dimensions of mental illness are very different than a lot of people. If you cannot do something medically, per se, join one of the political advocacy groups, Mental Health Association, NAMI, there's a number of other ones, and just become vocal. Become very vocal and try to at least make things change that way. It can be extraordinarily helpful. It'll have its frustrations at times, but we need people on both sides of the treatment desk. And sir, sadly, it's, uh, I'm sorry that you can't be on the clinician side, but my God, can you be helpful on every other side? And, and thank you for your, your concerns. Thank you. We touched a moment ago upon uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty in this whole COVID situation. The endpoint is vague. We get mixed messages from the media and every other source. Abby, how does all this uncertainty play with our psyche and with our patient's psyche? It's, it's just so classically obvious that there's no sense of continuity. There's nothing to internalize, to feel safe about. One patient of mine said that her very safe retirement home is no longer safe. She's scared. People need consistency and they need, uh, it, it began, I, we tried very hard, we talked before we started it, not to get into politics, but words matter and people listen. And they listen to our leaders and they want truth, consistency, and they cannot be confused. Words matter. One of the things that for those of you who have never studied and done psychotherapy is even though it seems that a psychotherapist is simply talking and chit-chatting, it's not. It's really not. There's a whole dialogue going on in the back of the mind. And you choose a word very carefully and you do that because you leave a mark with the word. So there is not that in the public world right now, not enough. It's happening a little better. One of the things to do, don't watch the news so much. Really don't because it's only going to confuse you. It can be very helpful if you have a friend, a clergyman, a child, or somebody else who can keep you going. It's destabilizing. Now, the following story, I can't vet past the point, but my son served in the Israeli army, and he told me that at the time that they only allowed the news to come on at 6 o'clock at night and 11 o'clock at night, not all day long, because they found that it is 
destabilizing. So we need to think about that and not get people to be where things are contradictory. Another thing is that if you watch one channel versus another particular channel, you're going to get two different stories. How are you going to get any comfort from that? It's impossible. So this is the time to segregate yourself a little bit from the news down to a minimum and, and not be alone. So that, that certainly is a very important concept, but part of the uncertainty is real uncertainty. Yes, it is. Is there any usefulness in realizing for ourselves, explaining this to our patients, that life itself is not necessarily predictable? Is there possibly a quieter or better underneath all the, the best-made plans that are not working out? I have been very surprised and pleased with the philosophic strength that a lot of my patients have. It really, I, I, some of them I did not expect it. I always ask a patient somewhere in the course of getting to know them, what role, if any, does religion play in their life? Because that can help explain a lot of things to many of them and give them great comfort. This may not be the time to help people look at their philosophical positions towards life and understand that, that we are mortal. But one of the things that I found very helpful, by surprise, completely by surprise, is a patient said, you know, I'm scared, I'm this, I'm that. And I go, well, you know, we are all critters and we are all part of the life force on this planet. So now we have a problem. We have to figure it out. You have to let the people who know how to figure it out do this. Don't try to figure it out yourself and connect with people and accept the fact that unfortunately, we're not going to tell you what you have been historically wanting us to tell you. So many people, and this is what I find fascinating, because after this is all ended, I would, some people, I never realized how fragile they were. And this is not the time to instantly fix them. So we just have to give them a, um, a sense that you were going to do the best we can. I can't lie to you. It's here. And I think that actually gives them more comfort, if, if that's the answer. It's a, it's a difficult answer because it's such a large topic. But it's important. And you talk about being close and being together, but yet social distancing. Everything yes. is about physically not being together. It's hard. We compensate for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, one man said to me that he's been married 52 years, and every night in his life he crawled in the bed and wrapped his arms around his wife, and he could go to sleep. Now he can't do that. He feels empty. And this is not going on just for a few weeks. This is going to be going on for weeks, for months, this whole social distancing. What long-term psychological implications is that going to have? It could leave very nasty scars. See, this is when it could transfer in, into a post-traumatic stress disorder. I am very worried also about the incidence of domestic violence because there's a lot of stress. Sexual abuse, which has been here regardless, but the domestic violence is an issue. People slipping backwards into alcohol or drug use people with obsessive compulsive disorders that is getting out of control. And this is why we as a medical community, as best as we can, need to ask patients, so how are you doing? Please tell me, how are you doing? I remember talking to you, you told me that you can't go to bed at night when the, the dishes are still in the sink because something's wrong, or you always worried about germs. Is that become more of a problem right now? Merely even just saying that and putting on the table helps re reduce some of the pressure. Dr. Sillinger is totally 100% right. This, I, we can't pretend because we don't know. And that's hard. And that's really hard for a lot of people. And many people are not psychologically set up to accept that. Sad. It, it, I don't have an answer. So we have another comment uh, from Megan. 
Yes. Megan? Yeah. So as you were saying before about watching, not, don't watch the news all the time. I think this is something important to stress to everyone. I've been working remotely for several weeks now, and I do watch the news all the time because I get messages from my staff about this and the lockdown, and I have to leave early to go to the grocery store. They rely on social media, and they hear rumors, and my friend's cousin, aunt's uncle's brother told me this and that, and I rely on the news to relay the most important information to them and tell them, avoid social media about the news and about posts, and they send me sometimes craziest information like, Everybody go to the grocery store now because the county is shutting down tonight at 12.01 a.m. And so when you were talking about not watching the news too much, I agree. But at the same time, I think it's important to stay up to date just because, just forewarn people not to rely on social media for updates about the pandemic. And you, obviously, from what you say, can do this, but with the appropriate filter. And you have learned how to prioritize, to emphasize or de-emphasize a particular piece of information and then use that accordingly. That's a very important skill and too many people do not have that. But I concur, we, we have to be, oh, I'll never be one to say we have to filter the news, never in my life. But you need a filter in order to know how to do it. It's like telling this to children. They need to understand where this is coming from, but they can't take the full impact of it because they're not going to be able to process it. We're assuming that so many of the people that we're dealing with have the emotional maturity and wherewithal to properly process this stuff. Many don't. I think it's important to emphasize that as physicians and other healthcare personnel, we are the credible people who have relationships with our patients, and we need to be the credible source. Quickly, quickly, one more thing, Brent, that's really important, and I'm sure everybody here has seen it, and that's we have become a, a, a society where everybody tries to outsmart the doctor. They come in, and they've read an article on this and that and that and this. Therefore, this and that and that it is true, and they want they come in to see if they can convince you to do something based on what they saw. So... As much as I encourage people to know about their illnesses and their medications, I have a cup in my office that says, do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. There you go. <laughs> Could be a t-shirt also, right? Yes. Uh, another question on the chat. I've heard from patients who get infusions for disorders such as Crohn's disease and who are on chemotherapy or radiation. It is stressful enough requiring these treatments, but now compounded by the unknown should they be continuing treatment, and is it even a choice for them? Medically, I am not capable of talking about various levels of Crohn's disease and certainly needs to be discussed with the GI people. I do know that in psychiatry, with a particular medication called clozapine, depending upon where the patient is in their use of the clozapine, they need a blood test every week, every two weeks, monthly, forever, and the government has relaxed the requirements. 
for that blood test if people are afraid to go into a laboratory to get it done. That being said, the onus falls on the patient and the doctor and the family to decide if it's worth taking the chance. It's a hard call. And that, again, is important conversation that the physicians need to have with their patient and explain the importance. Because I, I think a lot of patients feel now every other disease has been put on hold now that we have COVID-19 that's taken over everything. Yes. Let's go back specifically to advice from a psychiatrist. What advice can you give directly to physicians and, and their staffs in terms of taking care of patients with COVID-related emotional problems? Start by taking care of themselves so that they don't get sucked into emotional problem that they're hearing from the patient. This is something that needs to be done. Then when they do speak to the patient to be as diplomatic, but honest. The last thing you can do is say, oh, we'll, we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll, we'll get it one, two, three taken care of. Patients are too smart for that. Focus more on the caregivers. That's the word I was looking for. Again, getting back to some good old psychodynamic stuff, which unfortunately is not touched on very much. There is a process called countertransference. That's when the doctor feels something, hears something in the patient that resonates with something in their own life. If the resonance is too strong, it may interfere with them being able to deal things objectively because it's bouncing into their emotional self. Every one of us doing it, even the mental health folks, because we're all human. We have to have a hard look at what we are, what we want, what we're scared of, and what we are all about. That makes us better as a treating, as a treating professional. And if we don't do that, I'm not going to say that it's dangerous, but it brings a risk to the table. Generally, when counseling, we talk about what's happening to them using the pronoun you. Now that we have a lot of the same anxieties and fears and uncertainties as clinicians, has the pronoun actually become we? Yes. Yes. It's no longer treating you. It's treating us. And how do we maintain our professionalism? We, we have to think about it and we have to focus. And that is our professionalism. We've got to rise to the challenge. But that being said, when the day's over, don't be alone. Talk to somebody, talk to your wife, talk to your friend. Can't go out for a drink. Do something and not be alone because we're not alone. Again, the pronouns have changed. This is no longer treating them. This is treating us. It's a paradigm shift for the way a lot of people think about their, their clinical roles. No question about that. We have a question from Michael Siegler. Okay, let's see here. Okay, perhaps that technology is not working. Um, looking, looking down the road, being a big problem for physicians, burnout. Physician burnout's made a huge issue. Physician suicide has become a huge issue over the last decade. What impact is the COVID-19 virus and the way we have to deal with that in our patients? What impact do you think that's going to have in that arena? Frightens me. It goes back to what you said a while back or someone else said that doctors are very hard, very reluctant to let themselves be helped and they hold things in and they want to fix themselves and they could slip into a depression and then the depression could slip into even feeling suicidal at times. I'm very concerned. The stress level on all of us, it, it struck me today that I am really tired, 
but there's no time to be tired. And I can't even go away on the weekend and just bum around somewhere. I'm very tired. And I don't know personally how I'm going to pace things so that if we're still doing this in May, I still have the ability to function. And so I need to find some things that give me some joy. I've decided to start taking some YouTube courses and internet courses. That's fine to a point, but there is a fatigue level slipping in and I feel it. And I worry about other people if they don't try to deal with it. Now, as a rule of thumb, strict rule of thumb, suicide is generally associated when somebody feels they do not have any more options. So I can't live anymore. Nothing's working. Everything is bad. It's time for me to quit. What do suicide intervention services often do? They try to find something in the person's life that still gives them some hope, that still gives them a bit of joy or a glimmer that they have an option. And so we need to help our own community with finding options. And it's, it's a very different world because our options, as one lady said to me, the distractions were taken away. She can't go to the mall anymore. She can't go to restaurants anymore. She doesn't have her standard distractions. Another part of this, which is, is, an, is an element because we're all human beings, is the whole notion of sexual intimacy. A lot of people, that's a very wonderful part of life. But how safe is it anymore? And is that something else I have to give up? I feel lousy about myself and I can't even make love to my partner? It gets that deep. Could be. Uh, Michael, we have you unmuted. Go right ahead and ask your uh, question. I, I'm not one to post random videos, mm -hmm. but um, man, uh, Natan uh, Stransky, uh, it's just three minutes if, if you guys want to watch after we finish. A few amazing tips on how to deal with isolation and the unknown, what we're going through. He was in Soviet prison and beaten for years for being a Zionist and later became the uh, head of the Jewish agency very helpful and insightful and maybe want to share with others. I would like to see it. I don't know how you can get the we link. We have to the us. link so we oh. can send that to all the participants or through the medical society. To follow your thoughts, sir, those types of stories say that we are not alone in this type of human suffering and isolation. And we don't necessarily need to just learn from ourselves. And if this sort of thing can give some person one little idea, great. Thank you. Just a moment ago, Abby, you were talking about people not having their the usual activities, the usual distractions. Yes. We're beginning to touch on suggestions that as clinicians we can make for our patients. You want to expand on that? I tell everybody as much as they can, and if it's safe, to get outside of the house. You know, you have to be careful. You, you can't walk in the mall. Some people have ambulatory problems and so on, but at least sit outside. Sit outside in the sun for a little bit. Feel the air. Listen to some music. Get outside of the inside of the house. We need also, and I'm trying to get a bunch of teenagers to start doing this, and it's not coming quickly enough, but pray tell it will, is to call your grandmother every day or call your granddaughter every day and have a one or two or three, four minute conversation. So your day isn't just sitting and festering on all of these things. These are critical issues. And if you have always wanted to learn, and if you have the capability of learning about, uh, let's pick something silly, 15th century English literature, do it now. Take a course. Fill your day with doing things. Take a course in cooking. 
Learn how to cook French if you've never cooked before. I don't have anything fancy. What this involves is it's not entertainment by other sources. It's entertaining ourselves. It's developing some sort of intellectual challenge that we are doing ourselves. I can't go to the movie and be entertained, but I have to find something myself. The gentleman just put his guitar on. So find something for myself just to let everybody know because I'm doing it is many, many years ago, I had an amateur radio license. I let it expire. So now I found a thing on the internet and I'm studying it again. And probably in about two, three weeks, I'm going to take the test again. I feel really neat about that. So people have to find the similarity in their own life. But you don't need to do the Morse code anymore. like it used Oh, to. thank God for that. Yes. <laughs> okay. We have a question from... Beth Manrisa. There we go. Go ahead, Beth. I wanted to go back to past coping. I found that with the people that I deal with, very often, if I'm able to take them back to another difficult situation that they were able to get through and use certain coping strategies, they find comfort in that. Is that what you find as well? Yes. And it shows that we will survive. We can survive. We can do all of that. You just need to have ample time shall we say, to open the door, learn what you have to, pick their strengths, and, and develop it. It's not, I know I'm not saying it with the adequacy and the breadth that it should be, but everyone will understand. It's not often enough to simply say, well, you had a problem like this 15 years ago when you got over it. Right. You don't know how they got over it. You, you don't know anything about it. I think the concept of learning from our past, and a lot of people are very surprised. I find it with a lot of the patients. It's amazing. It is amazing. The strength that they have in them. So your thoughts, I totally agreed. But for the average non-mental health person, not of any fault of their own, but that's not the way they were trained. That's not the way they think. That's not their ego structure in terms of the relationship to the patient. And who knows that this is all over. We'll have a surplus of mental health folks and everyone will even come to our side of the desk, which is not so bad. And for yes. years, we'd be able to say, hey, we survived the COVID-19 epidemic back yes. in 20, so that could give us some great resilience. On that concept, is, is that similar to why people are so comfortable with nostalgia, something they already lived through and survived? Yeah, it's familiar. It's very comforting. You're right. It is very comforting. It's that we can still acquire things that can become nostalgic in a good way. And, see, and that's a goal. And the goal can be calling your grandchild every day. You see things on television where the grandfather and the little six-year-old granddaughter are dancing with each other, but they're on opposite sides of the street. What this is bringing to us in so many ways is that we are used to touching each other for a lot of our emotional connection. We are, but it's not necessary. We can do a lot of it virtually. You mentioned in psychiatry and mental health counseling, you don't usually touch the patient, whereas in other medical specialties and almost other parts of medicine, we do touch the patient. How do we make that adjustment? You used the term a couple of weeks ago, and you said that as a dermatologist, at times you need to feel the rash. You need to feel the texture of the skin. So we have to tell people that normally I would touch your skin. Today I'm looking at it, but I am touching you in other ways and we are still connecting. It's an incredibly valuable thing. Now, psychiatry, oh, we could have hours on should we or should we not hug our patients, say hello to them, shake their hands, touch them, not touch them. Is it sexual? Is it boundary violation? It goes on and on and on and on and on. 
has to do with the maturity of the relationship. What people need to know more than anything else, that they are having the same attention paid to them and the same concern, whether or not we were touching them with our hands or not. That's what counts. That's the take home. Dr. Schillinger looked at my rash and he couldn't touch me today. And I understand why, but he was concerned. So you touch your patients in a different way. Yes, absolutely. And many doctors don't know how to do that. But now's the time to learn how. Absolutely. That's one of the silver linings, perhaps, that comes out of this pandemic. We're at the one hour mark, and I think we, we've had some terrific discussion here. I think we can do this again sometime in the not too distant future. And we're looking forward to having everybody join us again and tell all of your colleagues about this. Closing comment. I know one of the things you mentioned to me, Abby, is important for people in the healthcare arena to not forget how much good they are doing, incredible odds. And we applaud you all for being part of this tonight. This is actually being recorded, so it will be available for anyone who wasn't here or anyone who wants to listen to it again. And we got those other links that we'll, we'll get to all the participants. So once again, thank you. Have a good evening.